Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with author, speaker and cancer survivor, Josh Komen. Josh Komen, mate, welcome. Cheers, Manny. Nice to be here, mate. Mate, it's bloody nice to meet you. We, we only met last night, but um, I sort of know your story a little bit and um, yeah, we've sort of crossed paths and I feel like I've known you for a while already, actually. Yeah, well, I've heard a lot about you too, Manny. I mean, I come to your talk at O studio. It was fantastic, mate. We, um, Me and my wife got a lot out of that, so it's finally great to sit down and have a decent chat, mate. Yeah, it's been a long yeah. time coming. How are you, man? How are you? I'm great. I'm really, really good, mate. Um, I've got really good mental clarity. Uh, you know, I've got so much going on in my life right now, I, I couldn't be better. better. Especially mentally, eh? Yeah. yeah. You seem like, you know, you know, I met you last night and you sort of, you know, we were talking before about people when you sort of you meet and they sort of like radiate sort of like not happiness but like, I don't know, you feel like you've got this sort of maybe aura is the wrong word but you sort of <laughs> like you've got this this sort of greater sort of, um, you know, what's the word sort of feeling around you and it just seems you just radiate bloody happiness and good feelings at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, going through what I've been through for the past 10, 11 years, mate, you know, um, I've got a sense of gratitude that's just so overwhelming that I just appreciate every day and every opportunity that I've got. And when I meet people, you know, I'm just so engaged with them and I want to know who they are and, and I'm just so happy to be alive, mate. That's how simple it is, really. Um, I've got so much happening right now. You know, my wife gave birth to a to a wee girl last, um, three weeks ago. So, you know, I'm, I'm just ecstatic, mate. So thanks very much for being here. Yeah, no, mate, that's bloody, bloody great to chat. So, uh, mate, let's, let's um, you know, I saw you talk last night, so I sort of know your story a little bit. I listened to the podcast you did with, <laughs> with Dom Harvey and um, I know your story and um, obviously you've got a book out as well and I got to hear you speak last night um, and, and your story is remarkable. And so, um, you know, I, I guess let's just start and, and paint a picture. Not everyone listening is going to know who you are and your story. So let's sort mm. of paint a picture of, um, you know, life sort of pre-cancer for you? Yep. Um, I grew up on the West Coast, Greymouth, small town on the South Island. It's an amazing place. Um, town built on real hard, stoic attitudes. Um, my dad, was he worked in the coal mine, and my grandfather come from post-war Holland and had a farm down um, Wataroa, and they were tough men, real tough men, and that was kind of what I was brought around. You know, you work hard and you finish the job, and that's kind of what I got brought up around. Um, and I bought into that identity, you know. So whatever I did, I'd do it hard and I'd do it faster and better than anyone else. That was my mentality. And I found running and I became very good at running. So I brought that hard work mentality into my sport and I would be training, you know, every day after work. Um, I got a job as a line mechanic. I was working on power lines and it was a physical job, mate. Would be working 10, 12-hour days sometimes, working in the bush, carrying around chainsaws, carrying big ladders down down through the bush, um, digging holes, and then after work, I'd go for a, maybe a 20K run, and then I'd go get firewood for my family. You know, that was kind of my day and during summer and winter, you know, 24-7. I was just go, go, go. You know, I will work harder than you. That was my mentality. Yeah, yeah. And, and that came from your family, from your dad and grandfather? That definitely came from the environment I was exposed to, yeah, from my grandfather, from my father and my mother. You know, she was just an amazing lady. And my um and my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, her name was Jean Adams. She's passed away now, but she was just this amazing, humble lady. She was a nurse. I just want to talk about her for a bit because she gave me a lot of drive and vigor from what, what I went through. Um, so my nana was a nurse and she was the kindest-hearted lady you could ever meet. Um, she'd 
push, push out a shift, a night shift, see sick patients who didn't have their um, mum and dad there. She'd go home, bake a sponge cake, bring it back to them in the ward, mate. And, um, you know, she was just amazing. Her heart was so big and she gave to so many people in my community. You know, I, I really saw that and admired that from her. So I had that kind of compassion from my nana and this hardworking mentality from my other grandfather who come out from Holland to set up a farm. So Yeah, quite a yeah. juxtaposition, isn't it? It like was. Quite a, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just what I saw, I gravitated to. And I, I kind of call myself the thief in a way. You know, I meet people and I like what I see from people and I kind of grab it. You know, I, I kind of take it from them and I think, oh, I like that about that person, you know, and that, they're the two people that really kind of made me me as a young kid. Yeah. I mean, the way you describe your dad and, and grandfather, that's probably quite a, um, you know, their sort of generation. You know, how old are you now? I'm 35. You're 35. Yeah, I'm 36. So like, you know, our, our parents sort of, you know, you sort of say that that came from the West Coast. I'd say there's probably a lot of dads in that generation <laughs> that were probably quite similar, right? True. You know, quite, yeah. quite a sort of True. hard grafting sort of get on with that there wasn't a lot sort of certainly we talk about vulnerability now there certainly wasn't any vulnerability in that day and age no 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 men don't cry bro that was kind of the narrative back then you know just you shut your mouth and carry on yeah yeah, and then that was sort of it was mum or nan that, that gave you the cuddle if, if you you know you still were upset at the end of the day, wasn't it? Yeah, handful of lo- in the lolly jar, mate. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and so, um, so you said you sort of you sort of fell into running. And mm. so, when did you realise that um, a you were pretty good at it, mm-hmm. and or more than pretty good, you were really good at it, and b when did you realise that you wanted to like give it a go properly? Yeah, that's a good question, mate. Um. The coast has got a lot of great sportsmen, yeah. Um, a good friend of mine, Paul Cole, just won gold last night, Commonwealth Games. But I grew up with a guy that you've had on your podcast, Tim Bateman, and he was the sporting accolade on the coast. He was the man. And the only event I could beat him in was long-distance running. That was the only thing I could beat him in. He, he was just the man. And we had a bit of a rivalry growing up. And what I saw, Tim, he represented New Zealand at the under-14 basketball champs, and he had this basketball bag with the New Zealand fern on it. And I was getting good at my running, and I saw his fern, and he probably doesn't know this, but I thought, if Tim could do that, maybe I could represent New Zealand, you know? So I got pretty good at running, um, entered a few events in Christchurch and started winning them and going back and forth to Greymouth and winning a few Canterbury titles. And I thought, hey, I, I probably could do something with this. And I got a coach. His name was Dave McKenzie. He um, won the Boston Marathon in 1967. Um, it was the fastest time on American soil at the time. He won it in 2.15, the only New Zealand to ever win this title. And he started coaching me. And all of a sudden, I started getting really good. You know, he was putting a lot of Ks in my legs, developing a bit of speed work. And I won my, no, sorry, I won three Canterbury titles and then he got Jack O'Connor. He adopted some speed, some speed work, helping me out. And I got second at my first New Zealand champs. I got a silver medal at the age of 20. And finishing that race, running from the coast, working 12 hours a day, running after work, I thought, holy heck, you could probably do something very, very good with this. So I quit my job and I moved over to Christchurch to give it a real go. Mm-hmm. Mm. Is that all 800 metres, all the events you're talking about? No, it was from 5K down, 5K yeah. to 400. Yeah, I was kind of winning um, Canterbury titles there. Yeah, and 800 just became your specialty by just yeah. Just by default, yeah. I had a lot of speed. I could pull out a um, 400 and about 49 high. I was running 100, uh, 100 metres and about 11 low. So that was pretty fast for a middle distance runner. Mm. And I could do a, a 
solid 10k, but um, the 800 seemed to suit me, especially, especially mentally. It was fast mm-hmm. and it was vicious. You know, that was kind of my mentality I liked. I couldn't slow back a bit. I just liked going out hard and, and running hard. So that was me. And I found the two-lap event really good. It was just a tough race and I like to be tough and yeah. kind of finish strong. So that <laughs> yeah, was yeah, me, yeah, mate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, um, do you, have you still got that in you, that sort of like, that sort of ferocious, sort of fast and loud <laughs> and quick and like is that, I mean, I wouldn't describe, I've only met you for, you know, 24 four hours or so, but I, that wouldn't be the way I'd describe you. No, um, not now as opposed to everyday living, which I used to. Yep. Every day was a fight for me, you know, yep. like working and that. But um, my wife has recently, she got me playing squash for the last three years and she's seen me on the sports field now and she knows when someone looks at me and thinks they're ahead, there's a switch that can yep. flick, mate. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think every, everyone that's sort of, you know, competitive and successful has that sort of innately in them, right? Like yep. I think that's sort of something that, you know, you can be as nice as you want, but when, when there's a competition and there's, and it's True. on the line, like I think people, that spark is sort of hard to hard to lose. I mean, I hate losing, you know, like in um, – 100%, you know. mate. <laughs> me, me too, mate, especially in, in sport. You know, I, I don't like to lose. I like to do my best. But um, during the day I can control it now. I know when to choose to – to flick that switch now, you know, this is it, you know, this is a competition, let's go for it. Yeah. But now I know when to pull back and yeah. engage with someone. And, and yeah, 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 totally. And um, and so, uh, like, I, I'd never done sort of short distance running. I sort of like, um, you know, like maybe I would say long, but, you know, medium to long. So what sort of, um, you know, what would you run 5K in? 5K, my best time was 15.07. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you say it, it is fast, but at that time – I could have done a lot faster, but I wasn't really pushing the 5K. Yeah. Um, I only did a handful of 5Ks, but it was 15.07. Um, yeah. Even doing long distance, even doing a half or a full? I did one half marathon when I was 17, yeah. and that was the ball of half. Oh, yeah. 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 And what did you run that in? 119. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. But as you go, you go, I mean, you got a coach that ran a 215 full. 215. Like, yeah. His best was 212 in, in Japan, but yeah, he, he was a man, Dave yeah. McKenzie, a little fella. Yeah. Yeah. Just a hard man, yeah. hard man. Yeah. I, I love running because, um, well, maybe not so much sprinting, but I love, I love distance running. Again, so that in air quotes, um, <laughs> because I find it's a it's a mental battle. Like I mm. find that like when you're running, it's like. I kind of think of it as like almost the devil and angel on your shoulder. It's like your head is like your mind's like. You know what you should do? You should stop. That's what you should do. And like, you know, it's like every muscle on your body is like sending these signals to your brain. It's like, you should stop. Like yeah. there's a red light coming. Why don't you just stop it there and let it go? Or like the dog needs to pee. Why don't you just stop with him? And like, or, you know, like there's a, why don't you wait here? And all this kind of, and you, and you have to, there's that, there's that constant sort of struggle in your head where you go, no, I'm not here. I don't want to stop. I don't want to slow down. I want to, and it's that kind of, it's a mental fight more than it's a physical fight. Well, you set yourself a task really to finish a run, a distance or a time, and it's kind of like, well, I've set that, the intention's there, I want to get there, but as you're going, it gets harder and harder. That lactate builds up and it's like, holy heck, I'm, I'm struggling. Mm. But you've set that goal and you want to finish it, but you, you want to stop and it is in between, but it's whether you choose to continue yeah. or stop. That's a that's a conscious choice right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, you did yeah. right. And um <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you obviously had that sort of fight in you, and um, that sort of spirit, I guess, sort of ingrained into into who you were, and so that's probably part of the reason you were sort of so ruthless with training and and events and and uh, and that fire in your belly, as you said. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and also too, running was a like a meditative freedom for me. You know, I had a lot of struggle with my dad growing up, and 
we didn't really understand one another and it was just a bit of an outlet for me too. You know, I love just feeling my breath and, and the wind on my face and just, just running and that momentum in my whole body was just the blood flowing. I just really enjoyed that, just feeling myself from internally mm-hmm. as, a, as opposed from seeing all these external stimulus. I could just be with myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. very meditative. It's one of those things that it's sort of, you know, there's nothing to do but think, you know, almost. It's like... I don't know. I've come up with some great ideas running, you know, like all my <laughs> yeah, sort of good ideas yeah. seem to come because you just sort of, I, I feel like not when I'm trying to run fast, but when I'm sort of, I don't want to say plodding, but, you know, I'm just cruising along and I'm comfortable, but it's early in the morning and the sun's coming up and, you know, I'm just cruising along the road and there's just some birds and no one's around. Beautiful. I feel like, yeah, yeah, your mind really does some good work at that time. So, yeah, very meditative. I can certainly relate to that. And then, so you're obviously doing pretty well. And then I think it's 2011 and you, yep. you, you, you ran, I think you got second a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And then you ran like a PB and you're mm-hmm. like, this is my year. Yeah, yeah. I ran a great time trial and I knew I was in like 148, 149 time. And I needed this race to kind of put myself out there. You know, like Josh Coman is on that national scale. He, he can go this way. But um, I ran my first race of the season. I finished close second. Um, it was a PB. And he was a, he was a junior. He just got back from World Juniors. But I was in this, just on the senior men tier. So I got that. I was in number one New Zealand senior men at that time and we were pushing for a few events and I was I was after these times. New Zealand champs were along the way and I knew I was going to win this race. You know, you, you just know sometimes and I just knew this was my year. You know, I had a great season of 2010 building some Ks on the legs and then all of a sudden I was out training with a um, training partner, Andrew Davidson, and I just rolled my ankle on absolutely nothing and it just wouldn't heal, mate. Um, and I didn't know what was going wrong. Like, why wouldn't it heal? You know, normally it took me maybe five or four or five days to recover from a, from a little ankle sprain, but it just wouldn't heal. And then um, I had to pull out of the races, couldn't run at New Zealand Champs, and I was devastated. And you were thinking because of an ankle sprain? Because of an ankle sprain, yep. Yep, that was my initial thought, and I was just, I was getting angry. Like, all that work I put into, you know, it's just gone, just gone. Unfair, eh? Yeah, and and it was an ankle sprain in my mind at the time, but yep. something more sinister was lingering. lingering. So, so I you just, had like a gut feeling? Yeah, I no, I did not have a gut feeling because I was young. I didn't think anything bad mm-hmm. would be happening. I just thought, oh, I've just been pushing the candle at both ends. Maybe mm-hmm. I need a rest. So I booked a trip overseas a um, couple of months just to rest, and I decided to enter um, a bike race, a round runner bike race mm-hmm. around your area, mm-hmm. where you know. <laughs> it's a 130k bike race, and I collapsed halfway when I did it. You know, I was up with the leaders at the start, and I just collapsed, fell off. And I thought, what the heck's going on? And I thought I was just low on sugar. I pushed myself up to the Lake Runner Township, walked in, staggered in, can I have a Coke and a Snickers bar? Sat there for 20 minutes trying to get myself right. And all I said to myself was, finish this fucking race, mate. Just finish this race and go home to bed. Finish the race, push my bike over. And I slept for a week and I was having night sweats and convulsions and I was losing weight. Woke up one morning, collapsed at the sink. My brother took me up to the hospital. They did a blood test and the next day I found out that I had um, leukaemia. Cancer, yeah. And mate, what's that like? Like, you know, um, you, you know, you you hear that word cancer a lot, right? Mm. And um, you know, if you think, you know, you know something's off. Like, you, you know, you've got a sprained ankle and hasn't healed. You're sort of, you know, you've, you've got this. You're obviously very fit and strong and healthy. And then you, this race doesn't seem right and you collapse and then you go into the hospital and, and someone does a blood test. And like, I mean, like when someone tells you that you've got cancer, like how, 
what's what's the process like how do you like were you was it a shock or were you like i feel like something's really wrong here yeah i knew something wasn't right in that week after that bike race i knew something was lingering but i didn't want to go to the doctors to find out so i got my diagnosis he came in and it was probably the most unprofessional way you could do it. You come in, my family were there, and everyone was there, and there was this old fella across the room from me. And he comes in and just presents my diagnosis in front of the patient. And he gets up, this old guy, he goes, I know what leukemia is. My my father, oh, my brother died from this and going on. My mum's like, shut the fuck, you know. Mm. And I'm confused. I had no idea what leukemia was, no idea. I knew what cancer was, but I didn't know what leukemia was. It was a foreign word to me. And in that moment, you know, my mum's, crying hysterically. My uncle's got his arms up in the ears going, no, no, no. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Like, what is this? Yeah, cancer. Yeah. And I knew someone who'd previously um, died from it. And I thought, far out. Um, Am I going to die? Am I going to live? I just had no idea. It was complete confusion, Maddie. Mm. Complete confusion. Yeah. Yeah. What a like a. And that first initial diagnosis, it was just pure confusion because there was just so much going on. and And I had no idea exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah, and it's almost like, I mean, yeah, you knew something was up, but it's sort of like, you know, yeah, you're right. There's confusion. There's so much going on. I can sort of, you know, I can try to imagine it and it's sort of like doesn't seem real, almost like a, a dream or a nightmare. You yeah. Know, it's like, oh. I mean, you were one of the fastest in New Zealand. You know, sickness wasn't in your parameter, you know, being that sick. And it's like now I've got to go to hospital. I've got to be in an isolation room. I've got to have chemo. What's chemotherapy? How does, how, how's that on my body? Had no idea. Mm. You know, you hear about things, but you don't understand it until you feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah 100% right. And so what happens from there? So I was at the West Coast at the time and I got sent over to the South Island Bone Marrow Unit here in Christchurch to understand more about the prognosis and the treatment plan. And it turned out that I had a poor prognosis. Um, I had acute myeloid leukemia. It was quite aggressive. And what does had, poor prognosis mean? Um, just that I had um, bad genetic markers in my blood mm-hmm. that were so I had this FLT3 protein marker. It's very deep scientific, but it was a genetic mutation that was put me in this poor prognosis category. But in saying that too, bro, a lot of people who get my disease are in that sixty to seventy to eighty bracket, and I was twenty three at the time, so. You know, you can't put a 23-year-old in a 70-year-old category because my immune system's a lot different. So, I mean, that was just a medical statistic. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to go for seven months of chemotherapy. I was locked in an isolation room, Um, a room about the size of this, mate. It was a little bed, a pump, a shower, kitchenette. And as I said earlier in the conversation, I lived outside, mate. I wasn't used to being confined in a little isolation room for months at a time. My first round of chemo was extremely hard. I, I never understood that real physical pain. My s- stomach lining got stripped away. It shrunk to a walnut. I was put on IV morphine, chemotherapy. But then, as I said last night, you know, there was this mental pain that was lingering and I didn't really understand that. I'd never had so much negative thoughts come inside my head because all of a sudden from the chemotherapy, my body had just diminished significantly. I was skinny. I looked like a foreign alien. My all my hair was gone and, you know, I had this kind of identity crisis because all I knew was hard work and running. That's all I knew. I didn't really understand myself fully. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I just looked at that physical self and, and I just hated who I looked at, hated myself. Mm. Yeah, it's a um, – it's, 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 there's a whole – I think it's changing now a little bit, but there's no – 
you know, there's there doesn't seem to be a lot of understanding that there's an, a mental element to almost every physical ailment that True. you encounter. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like um, I had an accident and I you know broke both my kneecaps and never even you know they do an X-ray right, they can tell you what's happened physically. Mm. There's no one even saying like you know this might be hard mentally. You're going to be in a wheelchair for a long time. Mm. You know, like and and same you know sounds like it's sort of similar with you. Like it's sort of like you know we can do a test and we can know physically what's happening, mm. but um, it's hard to quantify a mental challenge that's in front of you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, they did give me the option to have psychologists in that, but I was just so angry with myself. I said, no, no, just go away. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just, I don't want to talk to anyone. They had that option there, but I didn't want that. I, that was my choice and I pushed it away. I pushed mm. it all away. I couldn't talk to anybody. But you're right in the sense that when we do get into a physical dilemma or some sort, there's no kind of, hey, is there someone over here? Is there this someone over here? But I suppose in that medical realm, all they're trying to fix is that specific yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it's, you know, like it's a, uh, they've got a test that confirms your arm's broken mm. or you've got cancer or mm. whatever it is, you know mm. what I mean? Like there's no – it's quantifiable. It's hard to quantify, you know, I'm a 7 out of 10 at the moment or I'm a 4 out of 10 or I'm a 2 out of 10, you mm. know. And so, um, and so, and so, you know, tell us about – how that unfolded dealing with the the mental challenges that you faced. Yeah, it was um it was a bit tough to talk about, mate. Um, but halfway through my treatment, you know, I just had enough of everything, you know, the, the physical pain from the chemotherapy and and just the mental tirade that was going through my mind. Um, and I thought I was a burden on everybody because why was I making everyone so sad and upset? What you know, why are you doing this to everybody? You know, you're nothing, you're weak, you've got no purpose, there's no meaning in your life, you'll never run again. So I was staying at this place called Ranui House, which is an amazing, amazing facility. I was on the fifth floor and my mum went out to get some groceries. She left her cup of tea on the bench and when she left, I was just crying hysterically, mate. You know, I just couldn't control everything. And, yeah, <laughs> I went to the balcony and I thought, no, the only thing that you can control right now is ending this, mate. You can, you can end this. And I, I went over, put my foot over and... and in that instant, mate, you know, I felt this gust of wind hit the right-hand side of my cheek. You know, I, I feel it now. and I feel it now. And I look back and I saw my mum's cup of tea and, and you know, I could not put the pain I was feeling on, on my mum. I couldn't put that if I left. <laughs> and I sat back, mate, and I just put my fingers in my head and I just cried hysterically, mate, you know, like what was I thinking? I just... I, what was going on and I needed help. No, I didn't need help and I'm just crying, mate. And <sighs> Sorry, mate. No, it's... Um... Yep, and then, uh, and then I, I just came, mum come back, I went to bed, I popped, I popped three sleeping pills to have a sleep. Next morning I knew I had needed help and there's a saying, you know, you don't use all your strength unless you ask for help and I needed help and... Luckily in New Zealand, you know, we, we've got a backbone of foundations and good people that give their time to create charities and that. And in the cancer realm, there's a place called Canteen. And I asked the Canteen coordinator, can I talk to a psychologist? And I approached her and she said, yeah, we've got plenty here. Who do you want to talk to? And she gave me this person and sat down and we had a chat, many sessions. And basically the emphasis was 
it's not you, Josh Coleman, your internal self, you. It's not you that wants to die. It's just this pain and the temporary situation you're in right now that you want to die. That's what you want to die. So that kind of changed my perspective that I'm trying to get through this. And, and I also got given a book. He gave me a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning. Fantastic book. And it basically emphasised what Viktor Frankl went through. He was in a prisoner of war camp in Auschwitz for four years. And he said, when everything's been taken away from you, you've still got one freedom left, and that's to make a choice, a conscious choice. And once I read that, I thought, I'm going to make a choice here. No matter how hard life gets or how hard this cancer gets, I won't do what I thought I would do and try and take my life. I won't do that. I'll, I'll pick up the burden of being and carry on. Yeah, and that was my choice. Yeah, I mean, um, that's it's t- I know it's tough for you to tell, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to hear, man, and I... Um, you know, I know everyone's glad that, you know, you did what you did. And I sort of want to um, unpack it a little bit mm. in the hopes that there's someone listening that, um, you know, this this could help. And so, you know, firstly, you made the decision not to do what you were thinking based on understanding that you would it would make someone else's life really hard. Yeah. Yeah, understanding that I was in deep despair and I saw my mum's tears and I've got a really close connection with my mum and I know how much she's given me and I hated seeing her upset. And instantaneously I felt my mum like I felt all her love there and that's what I gravitated to, that that pure connection and I held on to her connection internally, if that makes sense. You know, it wasn't that physical handhold there. It was internal and that's what pulled me back, that deep connection to my mum. And I know some people may not have a mum or a father or, or things like that, but I know we're all connected somehow with someone during our lifespan. And that's what I choose to hold on to. So when I meet people now, bro, you know, I'm looking for the goodness within them. I look them in their eyes and I see, who are you? I don't see this physical self. I see, who are you? And that's what I take, you know? And that's why they can try and see from me as well, because I've been through something and I want to connect with them because we're all going through something. Life's hard, mate. Life's really hard. And I know people are going through their own issues. It doesn't have to be cancer, it's their own personal struggle. And I'm trying to connect with their pain inside themselves, you know, so we can understand one another. And in that moment, you know, I felt my mum's pain. And I just bought it inside myself and I bought myself back and I said, how can I? And then I asked myself, I've got to get myself right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just that pure connection. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and um, which is selfless, you know, like it's like the the selfish thing for you was to, you know, make it easier for yourself. The selfless thing to do was to, um, you know, not make it hard on everyone, harder on everyone else. Yeah. And so you made a very... Um, yeah, selfless decision. Um, and, and the second part of my of my question is then, um, you you recognised that it wasn't right because you knew that that wasn't thinking like that wasn't you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you reached out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess the point I want to focus on is that. It worked. You reached out. You spoke to people. You found the help, and it and it changed the way you saw things and the way you thought. Correct. It. I mean, I still struggled for that rest of the half. I still struggled, but I had tools now. You know, I had a perspective of Viktor Frankl's story. He he suffered for four years. I had that perspective, and I thought if he could get through what he went through, 
I could get through what I went through, yeah. So I decided to put my running mindset, I wanted to be the best runner. How about you be the best cancer patient you could be? Yeah, how about you You get to this finish line? There will be a finish line because everything everything does end, you know. The only constant thing in life is change. So I thought, let's get through this and see what opportunities beckon at the end, you know. Who knows? Maybe I get back into my running. And I did read Lance Armstrong's books at the time, and that was inspirational for me despite the drug scandal and everything that's gone mm. on. Like, full credit to him for getting back on the bike, yeah, because mm. I know the treatment that he did go through was tough. And that was inspiring as well, you know. So maybe I thought, oh, I could run again. And that kind of hope was there when I was reading other people's stories. And that gave me perspective and a bit of perseverance to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. And also, too, I I managed to open myself up a bit more and and talk to people once I talked to the psychologist because he told me, like, other people going through stuff, Josh, too. You know, you need to need to gravitate and talk to the people you trust. Not everybody, but just the specific people. And I had a good couple of friends at the time, Hamish Patterson and, and a good friend, Ruth Croft. And I spoke to them um, daily. My mate Hamish would come in and I'd fall asleep and he'd just sit there and I'd wake back up and he, he was there. And I, and I spoke to them. They couldn't understand what I was going through, but they just listened. And they had really good ears and they just listened. And I had that really good trust aspect with them. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Ruth and Hamish and my mum were, were three advocates in my corner, just people who I, who I started to talk to, mate. Yeah. But it's just breaking down that stigma of not talking to talking. Yeah. 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 And and that's a it's a hard thing, right? Like it's it's it sounds easy from the outside, you know, like I'll just start talking to people about whatever's going on. But um, you know, you probably don't know, but I went through some stuff as well. And um, you know, the uh, they say that, you know, problem shared is a problem halved. It was almost like the first time I really told someone what happened. I felt like it really was like a weight off my shoulders. Almost I wasn't I wasn't carrying a burden around anymore. And then so for me, I then started telling more people thinking it would get easier and easier. But I started telling people that I wasn't that close with that probably didn't need to know. And so and then it, it didn't work. The opposite thing happened. It was like, you know, I told a few really close people and they were like, Hey, we got you back, like tell us what you need. Like we're here sort of thing, much like you had. Yeah. And then I was like, Well, cool, it must be the more people you tell, the easier it gets. <laughs> and uh that wasn't the case. Yeah. You know, so they sort of went, Oh yeah, you know, hard luck, you know, keep going. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that was kind of worse. And so I think one thing you said that was really helpful was, you know, find the people that are in your corner. Did anyone surprise you as far as like, you know, were those two people you mentioned, did you expect them to be in your corner? Um, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, they've been my best mates for a long time, but Ruth especially, she's she's a woman. Um, I think women have a natural attribute to be able to listen, to be able to talk. Um, and she was great. But Hamish, he, he was just there, you know. Sometimes we didn't talk about how he was just there. His yeah. presence just made me feel comfortable. Yeah. You know, he was, a, he was a strong man and we did a lot of physical activity together. He was from a, he was from a farming background. Mm-hmm. But just having him there physically was just enough for me. But Ruth, I could t- talk on a deeper level. Yeah. And she seemed to just listen, not even understand, but just listen really empathetically. Mm-hmm. And it is that choice of who you choose to talk to. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's, it's funny. Like you always, um, I found that when, you know, it, it's surprising who reaches out to you. Or I was surprised anyway, you know, like who actually reaches out. And um, it doesn't have to be sitting at your hospital bed every day, but it might be, a message every couple of days. How's things? You know, what are you up to? Did you watch the game on the weekend? Like it's that sort of like contact. And I was really surprised by who reached out. It wasn't the people that I expected. Mm. And the same 
other way, the people that I did expect didn't do the things that I kind of thought. And it was, you know, I think the learning from that was for me is that like, if someone else is going through hell, even if you're not that close with them, you can be the one that sends the message. Yep. You know, like, and yep. and so I sort of find that now, and, and some people find it maybe probably a bit weird, but if I find out someone I know is going through some hard stuff, I sort of reach out and sort of try and be a bit um, – you know, probably they probably hear from me more in that time than they probably did. And and maybe that's annoying. But, you know, for me, I was really surprised who came out of the woodwork and was there. And I was surprised who wasn't there. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the lesson moving forward is that, you know, we can all be one of those people for someone else. And you never know if it works out and you are that person and, you know, they, they do need you and, and, and you and you help and it's wonderful. But if not, then, you know, at least, the, you know, you've given them the opportunity, you've I guess. You've given them the option. That's right. Yeah. You put yourself out there too. But I mean, even if you don't recognize people going through a hard time, it's like, why don't you put yourself out there initially? You know, yeah. we're all trying to trying to help one another go forward in this chaotic life. Mm. You know, put yourself out there without knowing, you know, someone's going through a hard time because I just think life's tough, generally tough. But, you know, you spoke about other people who were in your corner, you know, once I got out of hospital, I kind of gravitated towards older people, you know, my next door neighbor, John Olson, you know, we, we were always mates in that. But finally I was talking to this fella, this older guy at a deeper level and I felt a real trust connection there. And it's interesting, you know, I become, he become one of my best mates from that perspective, hearing his insights through his life. And I started listening to his stories and it's like, wow, oh yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's surprising who you who you end up with and and who you need as well. Probably, Correct. I think you know you don't you know it's yeah. you probably didn't expect that. But, no, I didn't. And and like we talked about before, I don't know. There's always I feel like there's always sort of bigger forces at play. I'm not sure what it is, but the right people tend to be there when when you need it, and um, yeah. and you know that's yeah. what we can all try and do. Maybe is just be that right person if we need it. Correct, Maddie. Yeah, be that right person if we need it. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so and so you 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 know you've talked about getting out of hospital, so. Mm. Like, do they call that remission? Is that what? Yep, yep. I was in remission, officially in remission. Yeah. So yeah, I had seven months of chemotherapy. I had it in my central nervous system. So I was getting chemo and, and lumbar punches in my central nervous system combined with um, um, chemo. So we had that done and then I got out. So tell me about tell me about when you find out that, that you're in remission. Like obviously someone walks in and tells you you've got cancer at the start. Yeah. What's it like at the other end? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of confusing again because you're in a poor prognosis and you get told you're in remission but then you get told there's a high chance it can come back so I was like oh okay bittersweet yeah bittersweet mate it really was I was like okay what, what do you do with that so I was kind of lingering with this thought okay I'm going to get maybe I'm going to get cancer back what am I going to do with my life what am I going to do you know so I went back home to Greymouth you know it's just a beautiful place bro love it and I just went surfing for about four to five months, just out in the surf most days, just to recollect my thoughts. And I knew at that time I had the people who I could talk to. And I knew that I didn't have to go put out myself and just say, hey, this is, because I knew people wouldn't understand. I was 23, mate. You know, the boys were still out drinking and stuff like that and doing all that. And I didn't want to go to the pub. You know, I was the fastest at the start. I got cancer and I nearly took my life and I had all this pain. I know, I knew, knew, knew one, I knew no one could understand that. So I just kept to myself, which was fine, and spoke to the people that I trusted, went surfing, and then a friend rung me up and he said, hey, bro, do you want to go to Everest Base Camp? And I said, mate, you've, you've, <laughs> you're bloody kidding me, mate. <laughs> I've just had seven months of chemo. I'm trying to get my body right. And then I went back in the surf the next day and I'm just out there paddling away and I thought, mate, you could get this cancer back. You've got you to take these opportunities while you get it. 
So I rang him back up and I said, yeah, mate, let's do it. And I was, I was very scared at the time. You know, I didn't know what would happen. This was my first big overseas experience. But I flew in five months after my last round of chemo. I flew into Kathmandu Airport in Nepal. And it was just incredible, mate. It was a real life-changing experience. I got um, picked up in my, in my tuk-tuk and I was driving along the road, this bumpy road, and I saw these kids, mate, and... They had no tops on, they were in bare feet and they were plain and rubbish, but they had these beautiful smiles and they and they waved waved at me and I, I waved back and this just struck a chord. I was like, holy heck, these kids have nothing. But yet I suffered in such good conditions, you know. I I had the adequate treatment, I had a nice bed, I had a warm room, I had my mum there, I had good food, and these kids had nothing. They're still smiling and rubbish with their friends. And I thought, how lucky was I? How lucky was I to suffer in good conditions? And that really changed my mindset, yeah. And I thought how I was just so grateful to live live in this country we do. I, re- I really did. Perspective, eh? Yeah, it, it really was, mate. You know, um, kids were making happiness out of nothing. And here I was thinking I had the worst hand. But really, it was just, just my life. It was just my card that got dealt. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for traveling in the um – the perspective it creates you know you sort of you sort of get a bit sheltered living in particularly somewhere like New Zealand right you know yeah. like I mean you know your journey is different altogether but um you know in New Zealand you certainly get accustomed to to things that not everyone has mm. you know and it's there's nothing other than absolute luck that you were born you know we were born in this country or any you know any sort of country where people are probably listening to this you know and not um you know a third world country and you know you spend your days playing in rubbish for fun you know it's um yeah. and you see their struggles but you see their smiles within it you it's know trying right? to make the best out of a situation yeah. and that's yeah. what i admired about those kids yeah totally it's yeah. again it's you know i went through the slums in mumbai when we were there and um you know like it's like less than nothing man they're just fighting to to live mm. and um they're just so happy man and you just think you know like and it's i don't know what the answer i don't, I don't know you know it's, if it's expectations you know like we we're, we feel very entitled and, and 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 have this expectation that we should have a certain level of whatever and um you know these kids just i don't know whether they don't have high expectations they don't know i don't know what, i'm not trying to sound uh, condescending at all but i think they you know they just you know they don't need much they just they're so bloody happy with what they have you know and here we are bitching and moaning that we're stuck in traffic for four <laughs> minutes or what you know oh, like I totally get that traffic one. I mean, I'm smiling there in stuck traffic. It's fine, you know. (laughs) If I don't get to that meeting or whatever on time, that's cool. You know, that's just how it goes. You know, that situation's unfolded. But I think it's to the environment we're exposed to and that's what we know is what we know in that area. And that it's always trying to be better in the situation we've been given. You know, even we live in this nice place and do things, you know, we, we can make things better. And I think that's how we should live. And they they don't have as much as what we do, but they're still they're trying to make it better in the situation they're in. And, yeah. and they didn't have much in comparison to what we have, mm-hmm. but yet they were trying to make the best yeah. of that situation. Yeah. Attitude, yeah. right? Attitude, mate. Yeah. All down to attitude. Yeah, did right. And so, um, so you're in Nepal, and yeah, you, and you, you go to base camp. Base camp, mate, it was just fantastic. Eh, those mountains. You can see why so Sarah and Hillary was so drawn to it. It's just these mighty mountains around you, and you just feel so small. But yeah, it's just so majestic, beautiful. We trekked up there, and it was bloody tough. It took me about sixteen days return, but um, got up there, um, got a photo with my um, greymouth singlet up there with the base camp. And I climbed up this mountain with my mate Ben Wallace. We went up to um, Mount Kalapatas, just shy of 20,000 feet, so about 4,000 feet higher than Mount Cook. 
and it was beautiful. I got to watch the sunrise over Mount Everest and I gave Surrey a wee wave and it was just a small perfect moment in my life and, and it's something that just I captured and I knew that the hard work that took me to get there, I grabbed that moment, I achieved my goal and I grabbed it and I put it inside myself and I said, no one can take this away from you, Josh. This is your dream, this is your goal, that's your aspiration and I put it in there and it was a nostalgic memory I could draw strength from. Yeah. Yeah. Small perfect moment. It's a great thing. I call them pinch me moments. Pinch me. Like it. You know, like, yeah. you know, and you, I don't know where it came from one day, but you know, you, you have to pinch yourself. Like, is this real? Yep. You know, and it's sort of like. We've got to hold on to them, man. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to hold on to them. Savor it, right? You do, because it can be taken away so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what the enemy of savoring a moment is? What's that? Trying to bloody film it or take a photo of it. <laughs> you know, like, you want to take a photo. And I know, you know, like, you want to take a photo of it, but it's sort of like. You know, and I'm guilty as this of anyone, man. I love getting a nice photo, but you know, it's you know when you when you stop trying to do that and you mm. and you smell the smell and you taste the air Oof. and you you feel the, the the wind and you see the sun and you Mate. feel the warmth and my body's tingling. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, it's like that's the that's the that's the senses experience that you get if yeah. you if you savor it and you and you try and. Um, be there, be present and be, be nowhere else. But yep. when you're running around with your phone trying to get the best angle, you lose all of that, right? You lose it, mate, 100%. You know, our nervous system is the best camera. You know, we capture it with our eyes. And I was actually chatting to my mate Ruth last night and she just did a trek around Greenland. And she said to me, um, it's so good just leaving my phone behind. So she did this trek for four or five days in Greenland in the Arctic and she left her phone behind and she's just taking photos with her eyes. And she said, I just feel so good. I feel so good, you know. She's not carrying her photo around, phone around to get the best photo. You know, she's sponsored by Adidas, a world trail runner, and she's doing these photos, and she's just so nice. You know, I could capture everything with my eyes, and it, I was just there in that moment. Yeah, yeah. capturing with your eyes, take your photo with your eyes. It's yeah, a great way and to nervous be. system's the best, the best, um, yeah. the best receptor, yeah. best receptor of, yeah. uh, of 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 what's going on. So, you yeah, I mean it's you paint a beautiful picture. It sounds sounds amazing out there, and and so like was the walk. I mean, like I, I can imagine it's a tough walk were mm. you where were you at as far as you know say if you were you were very fit pre-cancer so like I'd say you were like if we said you were like a maybe like a 12 or 13 before because <laughs> you're probably above average if, if 10 is like you know a, a, a normal sort of like fit and strong person you were a, a very advanced <laughs> athlete at, at, at 12 where were you out of 10 when you were walking up to base camp yeah, because I, you're right, I, I was above average at the time, but having that running background, I recovered a lot quicker than I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think I was up to it, but on that average scale, when I think about maybe only 60% of people who set out to get to base camp get there, 40% don't. Really? You know, yeah. I was on that probably average capacity of normal level. So, yeah. and I thought I was a lot lower than that at the time, but looking back now, I was probably at average capacity and I recovered a lot quicker. So, having that running background and having that fitness yeah. really helped my recovery. Um, enhance a lot more. So, no, I I was tough. I did get sick. I got um, altitude sickness halfway up, and I had to stay an extra couple of nights to adjust to the altitude. But um, just down to that mindset, I, mm. I just wanted to get there and, and achieve a goal. Yeah, um, I think that um, there's something you don't know what's going to come your way, but there's something to be said for being fit and strong and healthy, right? You yeah, know, it's like, a foundation, eh? Yeah, and, you know, like you said, you can never, like, I don't know, if, if you're going to, if there's some sort of genetic, 
you know, if you're going to get cancer, you're going to get cancer, you know, like it's, I mean, there's obviously certain, you know, factors maybe that you can help with it, but you want to focus on those, right? You know, like you want to be doing the things you can control. You can't control your genes, right? You've got them. It's, yep. they're, they're with you and, yeah, yeah, until yeah. you're probably even after you because, you, you know, you'll stay on. But, um, you know, I guess you want to be, you want to, all the variables in the equation, you want them to be in your favor, right? Yeah. You know, and the things you can control are like, you know, what's going in my body? What am I doing yep. to my body to, you know, am I am I looking after it or am I, you know, am I, am I treating it poorly? Yeah. Um, and there's something to be said there. You know, you say that, you know, you recovered quickly because, you know, of, you know, being fit and healthy and strong beforehand. And, um, you know, also I would probably say more than that, you had a mindset of someone that could push yourself through hard things, you know, and I think I think when you, you know, exercise particular, I think gives, builds that that muscle of being able to push through things that aren't always easy. Yeah, it's a bit, bit like going to the gym in a way, you know, you train a specific muscle, you know, and from my early background from, as I spoke about my grandfather and things, you know, I had that um, muscle training in my in my brain, I suppose, you know, finish the job, get mm-hmm. there. You know, that was kind of not innately it. I don't think we're, we're all born with We can all adapt to it, mm-hmm. to the environment we're mm-hmm. exposed to. I think everyone has the capability of pushing through their own mm-hmm. hardships. I really do. Um, but I was just exposed to that kind of hardship mentality a lot yeah. earlier than most. Yeah. yeah. It's hardship mentality, but it's also discipline. Discipline, yeah. You know, like yeah. it's, it's doing things that you don't want to do because you know you should do them. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's yeah. discipline. It's like no one wants to go out and you know carry heavy things for a long period of time on a, on a, when you're working physically, and no one wants to get up at five a.m. and go running or go. But it's like it's the you're not as much as you're training your your physical body and your cardiovascular system. I also think you're training discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think there's something to be said for for people that are disciplined at at doing things. And you know, I'm certainly not perfect, but you know, I, I like to think that. Um, you know, that's one of those variables that we can control, right? You know, am it's, I disciplined at doing the things I know I should do? Yeah, that you know you should do because you are aware and yep. you know you should do it, yep. but you can take the easy way out and I'll sit on the couch and watch yep. TV. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, one of my sort of hats <laughs> I wear professionally is in the fitness industry and, you know, like it's funny, you know, like if you ask, you know, a percentage of the population you know, who would like to lose a little, you know, be lighter than they are, just a pure weight on the scales number, you know, it's probably around 80% of people would say yes, right? Mm. And if you asked all those people and said, you know, do you understand the primary concept of how to lose weight? They all say, well, yeah, I understand. You know, like I need to eat less and exercise more. Like it's not rocket science, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But um, it's it's the discipline to do that. Yeah. It's not, you know, people are always looking for these these sort of habits and tricks and tactics. But consistency is the key. Yeah, yeah, you got to be consistent in what you do. If you have a if you have a goal or an ambition, or you got to be continuous at it. You yeah. have to keep at it. Like um, Paul Cole, who won gold, you know, that guy trains every single day, twice a day. He's incredible. He's consistently at what he does. Mm-hmm. He's consistent and he turns up every day for himself because he knows he wants something. Yeah. And it's the same with a small goal, a micro goal, micro goal, just like you said, losing weight. Keep at it. Yeah. Even when that mind says, hey, I'm going to sit on the couch, it's that discipline and will to say, no, I want this more. Yeah. 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 Small things done a lot over a long period of time yeah. equal magnificent results. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm a huge advocate for um, for consistency. Yeah. And I Com- think- Compounding um, one percenters, mate. They all wet up, don't they? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you brought up a, I was going to say, you brought up a great point. I was just trying to, I was trying to run off it, but um, <laughs> it's escaped me. But yeah, like I think- um, 
yeah, the ability to to to, and it takes discipline to start, and then you build a habit, right? And then that then things come consistently, and then you know you just keep going, and it becomes part of your day, like brushing your teeth, right? Yeah, you never, you know, I'll skip it's this. And, yeah. yeah, it's just yeah, your daily routine. Yeah yeah, 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 and if you can put things into your <laughs> your, your habits and your daily routine that are that are helpful, you know, as well as brushing your teeth, you also exercise or train or meditate or breathe or whatever it is. That's it. You know, things are things are better. So you know, I got a bit sidetracked there. Um, <laughs> Um, you 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 walked you walked base camp. Um, you come back to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, then what? Um, I asked myself another question: What else want to could I do with my life? And I became a professional skydiver. I wanted to be a skydiver, so I enrolled in the Diploma of New Zealand Skydiving in Methven, just outside of Christchurch. And um, yeah, I was started to jump out of planes every day, and it was just amazing, mate. It was just so so cool, you know. Um, just me up in the air pulling my shoot and just flying around in the sky like Superman. Um, around, It was winter at the time too. You know, you've seen every square inch of the Southern Alps and it was just awesome, mate. It really was so cool. And it was the most freest I felt in my whole entire life, just pure freedom. That's the only word I could describe it. Yeah, yeah. I love skydiving. Mm. I've got my ticket and stuff. And um, You do? Yeah. And no, uh, I wanted to talk to you about this because I think it's – like depending on and how you how high your aircraft can go, how long you free fall for, right? And so like most of the ones I've done were about fifteen thousand feet, yep. so it was sixty seconds, and um, around about. And um, I just find even longer than the sixty seconds. From the second you start putting your shoot on and you take a step in that plane, you stop thinking about and until you land on the ground and your heart rate recovers, you stop thinking about everything else. Yeah. And you're so, just, yeah. You're just focused on that jump yeah. about survival. Yeah. 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 Straight and survival. We talked about running being like quite meditative, yeah. you know, like meditation, I guess is, you know, if you loosely described it as sort of being able to think about thinking or not think about anything almost, you know, like, and, and take all the noise out of your head. And I just find weirdly enough that, you know, when when the green light goes in the plane and the door opens, you know, it's like there is nothing else in my mind. <laughs> nothing. Pure nothing. meditation. You're just focused on that specific moment of yeah. jumping out of the plane and pulling your shoot, yeah. right body position and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that really changed my mental <clears throat> mental side of things too. I had my first jump with an instructor and we're doing our AFF, Advanced Freefall course, at the start and he's falling asleep on the plane. And I'm just like jittery, like I just had about four shits in the toilet, you know, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And he's sleeping. I'm like, what the heck? Is he, does he even care about this? We're about yeah. to jump out of a plane. We could die. <laughs> and he's just done it so many times and it just becomes that constru- controlled yeah. stress. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's um obviously it is it is you do adapt to it, but it's still I'm certainly not there, and I um you know I just love that. I mean, it doesn't matter what else is happening in your life, you know, mm. you, you're not thinking about finances, work, no. s- staff, stress, you know, it's just like I just you know as a yeah, it's a weird feeling, right? It's hard to describe, and then it is. and you just for that time you, you you said freedom, and it is absolute freedom from everything else, yep. and you're just then there's it's so loud, but it's so quiet at the same time, right? <laughs> Like well said, mate. Yeah, it is so loud with that plane at the start, but once you jump with all that wind and then you pull your chute, that mm-hmm. feeling when the ripcord goes, whoosh, yeah. and then that gust of wind, mate, yeah. and you're just in peace, eh? Yeah, it is peace. It is just yeah. peace, and you're flying around, and then you land, and it's like, wow, I was in the sky. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable, <laughs> eh? And, um, yeah, I always had this weird sort of, I don't know why, this always like this sort of Superman sort of thing, and, you know, 
and you put your arms by your side and you start tracking and it's just this like you just feel yeah it's a remarkable feeling so I can I can completely relate to that um I think you know as a kid growing up you always want to be Superman or Batman mm-hmm. or something like that flying around and you kind of get that feeling yeah when, when you're skydiving yeah. Eh? yeah you do and then yeah it's it's a it's a real again it's a juxtaposition between the, the you know you're falling and there's you're going at oh, 200 kilometers an hour and it's just like so much wind and noise and then you, you throw your um you know your shoot out and um it just goes bang and then it's just like dead silence and you just yeah you just stare this thing and I haven't done it in, in New Zealand but you just you know you turn you probably see the southern alps and the ocean and yeah. all this kind of stuff it's a it's a it's a magical um a magical thing and so um you know you've done I think you've said you've done 200 jumps now yeah I did 200 jumps during that time and I did a bit of work up in Machuaca Scott of Machuaca and was jumping there a bit yeah but I just want to give old Brett, Brett Finlay a shout out you yeah, we see up there. No, he's he's at meth. Oh, meth, and he, he flows around. But um, meth and shut down now, so he yeah. he just floats around. But he was the instructor at the time. Brent oh, yeah. Finlay, you're a machine, mate. Yeah, yeah. And um, and have you, when was the last have you you skydived at all recently? No, I haven't sky jumped in a while, just due to what unfolded after mm-hmm. what we talk about. But my brother's jumping now. He's an instructor oh, and yeah. he's doing awesome. Where so about? he's in Mochawaka. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's a drop zone safety organizer there now. Mm-hmm. I'm really really stoked with him. He's loving it. So my goal is to jump with him one day so when yeah. the body's kind of right and a bit more fitter I'll get up in the sky and do a jump with him mate so right. yeah oh that's fantastic um and so and it was kind of through skydiving that um you learned of the next you know sort of chapter yeah there's a bit of a story to that too I was jumping doing an 18,000 foot jump I was jumping with my mate Ivan and um I jumped out and I got hypoxia yeah um I had, <coughs> I had low oxygen saturation and I started seeing 10 of them and I was like, holy heck, what's going on? And then When you were free-falling? When I was free-falling. I wasn't so bad going up because we were breathing oxygen in the plane and then once I jumped out, just the altitude got me. It was just low at oxygen saturation and I had low hemoglobin to bind to the oxygen. And I saw a 10 of Ivan and I was like, what? what, what? And I, all I knew innately to do was just pull my chute. So I just pulled and he's looking at me. And What I height just, did you pull? 10,000 feet, yeah, 10 grand. It's normally you pull around five or four. Yeah. 4K, and I pulled at 10. But above 8 is still, you can still, you know, there's not enough oxygen for you to, is there? Like No. Because my, my, aren't most airplanes pressurised to about 8,000? Most are, but we were in a little caravan, so it wasn't pressurised. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just, just for reference, like yeah. if you pull at 10,000, yeah. you're still 2,000 feet above yeah. where, like an airplane would yeah. be pressurised. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I did that, and then I just put on my left riser and just spiraled down. You did. At least I knew that my chute was out, yeah, and yeah. if I did go unconscious, I'd still land somewhere yeah, yeah. instead of just falling yeah, down yeah, and then sure. relying on my AAD to fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What does that do at about 3,000 or something? I think 2K. 2K. Yeah, yeah. 2 grand, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and, so, yeah, and, so got, and so you're you're falling down, and then what are you thinking? Did you just think you just had hypoxia? Do you just think like? Yeah, I just thought I had hypoxia, yeah. yeah. And then I got to the ground it's quite interesting got to the ground and I went oh he's like what's going on man and then my body was sweating and then I took off my skydiving glove and I saw these purple spots and that was a sign of low platelets and that's what happened prior to my first diagnosis and I thought ah I know what's going on here so I walked back to the um, hangar packed my chute and I was just sweating and I knew what was wrong so I went back up and did low jumps. I knew I'd just get the week done. And I went back to my annual appointment to see my doctor and I said, listen, I, th- I think my cancer's back. And he did a blood test and sure enough, it was back. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, fuck. But I knew it that it would come back. I had this feeling. 
and I was just so happy with the decisions I made in that kind of 12 month period going to base camp being a skydiver I was content and I become more acceptance of death that death was a reality in life it happens to all all of us and you know if it was my time it was my time and I'd done the best I could with what I had and I was happy with that um so it was fuck there were tears but I was happy man I was I, I wouldn't say sorry I wouldn't say happy but I was content yeah yeah it's remarkable that as human beings we don't often value something to its true worth until we either lose it or or get close to losing it mm. right you know mm. it's like you don't you don't value something until you think it's gone you mm. know like it can be anything right it could be like you know like I don't know it doesn't have to be a, a death it could be like you know you don't realize how much you like um you know a certain cafe until they close down you're like oh shit I'm really good at this you know like it could be anything you know and, I, and it's like that fear of losing something almost inspires you to go you know if you get that chance like you did you know and that, appreciate it more the opportunity to be like you know yeah. what i'm gonna because because not many people how old were you then 25 26 yeah 25 25 yep. so i would say how many people at 25 years old you know have a have a, a relapse of cancer and go i'm okay i've 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 done what I need. You know, like I would yeah. say absolutely no one, you know, like, and the only reason you got there was because you'd been through it a couple of years earlier and you decided to spend the time you thought you had doing what you wanted to do. Yeah. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, right? And it's hard when you've got bills and work and Monday and Tuesday and responsibilities and mortgages and stuff, yeah. but you're right. We're all going to die. And I think the opportunity is to stop waiting, you know, not all people get a second chance, mm. you know. They don't. And to be fair, once we're born, that's our second chance and we should take every day as one lifetime. And yeah. I try to live a lifetime in one day. And, you know, you say about small things that we take granted for, you know, I've got this drink bottle in my hand, it's my saliva. If I don't have it in my hand, I'll start to panic because I know how important it is yeah. to me. And it's just these small things like that that really – for me, I just appreciate so much and, yeah. and just living and breathing, you know, it's, it's yeah. something that can be taken away so quickly. Yeah. yeah. You realise the fragility of life, don't you? Yeah, we're finite beings, man. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, there's that beautiful saying that we all get two lives. The second one starts when you realise you only get one. Yeah. Well said. Who you said know? that? I don't know. I it's, certainly it's can't nice claim saying. it. But isn't it? You know, and you, and you look at that and it was, it, we you know, when do you realise that you only have one? And, you know, some people you learn that early in your life. You know, sometimes people never learn it, mm. you know, and it's a hard thing to just learn, but it's something I think you have to go through, you have to experience, right? And, and you know, and in some ways it's, you know, I'm certainly not saying you're lucky, but in some ways, you know, being able to figure out or experience something that reminds you that we only have one life is puts you in a, in a better seat than people that haven't because you start doing things that m – that for you are living, you know, and that's whether it's jumping out of a plane or climbing Everest or whatever, it's a... Um, or even just sitting down and having a cup of tea with someone yeah. and having a genuine conversation, that's still living to me, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. Yeah. And so um, and so, what's, what's I guess, round two? I don't know if that's what, <laughs> sensitive to call it <laughs> yeah. round two, sorry. No, it was round yeah. two. Oh, yeah. I suppose it's round two, yeah. So this time it was going to be a lot physically harder. You know, I had the tools in my toolbox now to kind of deal with that mental mental state of mind um you know i was writing most days i was visualizing 
you know, I was praying, I was meditating, I was doing a lot of good things for myself on that aspect and had a lot of people to talk to. But um, the physicality of this treatment was going to be brutal. I'd have to have two months of chemotherapy, then I'd have to have a thing called an allogenic stem cell transplant. Um, so what that basically means was our immune systems derive from hemopoietic stem cells. They basically are factory cells. They kind of create our immune system. So my immune system, my own cells would have to be um, obliterated, you know, torn apart, and then this new immune system would have to come into my bone marrow and start regrowing again to replenish my new immune system. So that's basically the crux of it. But the treatment for that is just horrendous, bro. <laughs> I'd have to have this real high toxic chemotherapy. It's like Roundup times 10 combined with full body irradiation, and that was for a week, and that would basically kill me, just basically kill me. And I had 92 hours for, to allow this new immune system to arrive. It was a, I had a bit of a mismatch. It was from a girl in Germany, so it wasn't 100% match. So she was my donor, and I had 92 hours from her stem cell um, collection for me to have the arrival to have it put into my into my um, body. Yeah, and so that happens, mm-hmm. um, and then so I guess they like they like you said yeah they kill everything you have but mm. you almost, and then they try and build it back up again yeah. using this stem cell, mm. um, and so that works. Yep, it does work. It's a thirty thirty. 30 chance, um, so I had 30% chance of dying, 30% chance, 30% chance of living, 30% chance of getting graft-first host disease. So GVHD is a, a side effect from it. It's basically these cells that have been put into me start attacking my tissue, and there was this 10% chance of this unknown factor. Shit. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what happened? Yeah, I got the graft-first host disease quite severely. Yeah. But um, just prior to that treatment, um, my first round of chemo, I got neutropenic sepsis. So it's a bacteria in the blood, um, and I got put up into the intensive care unit, and I got put on life support. And I actually met a friend, and he had chemotherapy, and he got the same thing, and he passed away in the intensive care unit from sepsis itself. And they called my mum and dad up, my brother and sister, and said, you might want to say goodbye to your son. And they come up and, yeah, had a chat and said goodbye. But, um, you know, there's a bit of a story I tell sometimes with my dad. Uh, <laughs> You know, they called my dad up and said, "He's, you know, you, you got to come and say goodbye." And he was quite scared. He come up and as he was putting his hand on my shoulder, we laugh about it now as a family. And he put his hand on and has got this big builder's crack, mate. Bends down and he lets out this howler of a fart. And there's five <laughs> specialists, five specialists in the hospital room, mate. And Mum was like, "Peter, slap right." He's like, "Oh yeah, sorry, love. Sorry about that. See you later, son." <laughs> you know. Bit of comedic relief, eh? Yeah, I mean, we laugh about it now, but at the time, I mean, I was in a coma, I didn't know about it, but my sister, she tells us. So you're unconscious. I'm unconscious, yeah. fully unconscious. I've got a tube down my throat, you know, and there's a, quite a dramatic photo of me. Yeah, I've seen the photos. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Do, do they, do they, do you know this? Like, before, like, uh, you know, they tell your family to say goodbye. Are they, do you find out that you need, should say goodbye as well? Or did you ever, in this process, no. think you weren't <laughs> going to wake up from something? No, because I was in the bone marrow unit and my blood pressure just dropped, yeah, and I'm just confused and I can't remember anything in that two-week period. I can't remember yeah. anything, yeah. Yeah, and so um, obviously you woke up? I woke up, mate, yeah. God willing, I woke up and I was just this complete alien, bloodshot eyes, I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk, you know. I was just completely foreign, bald hair, and I was about 51 kg, yeah, and the normal – you know, just going backtracking here. So the normal protocol is having two months of normal chemotherapy, then two months break to have your transplant because the treatment in that transplant area is so, so horrendous. So you need time for your body to allow to recover. 
So from my last round of chemo, I got put into um, ICU and I had two weeks, mate, two weeks to get ready for this transplant. And this is just unheard of. This doesn't happen. <clears throat> so the only thing I knew how to do was kind of just go back to my visualisation. And I have, I have a higher belief. I've got a transcendent truth in my heart. You know, I, I believe in God and I just sat outside, um, outside the bone, sh- uh, bone shed, the boat shed, and there's a green shed there, and I just sat there and I meditated and I prayed and just feeling the sun on my face, and I just saw myself healthy and strong to go through this transplant. And that's all I did for two weeks. Yeah, and then, then the transplant came, had my, tra- had my treatment for it, and I just got blown apart. And, yeah, I was basically in the semi-comatose state in the bone marrow unit for about three months, mate, just sitting there. But um, as I said earlier in the conversation, small perfect moments. You mm-hmm. know, I couldn't talk. I mean, I could talk, but I'd just say a few words here and there. I couldn't eat. So what the most joyous part of my day was when my mum came over with sparkling water and she'd put little straw in my mouth. I couldn't swallow it, but I'd put the sparkling water in my mouth and feel the bubbles, the carbon dioxide bubbles go pop, 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 pop. And it just gave me this massive smile, mate. And that sustained me through the whole day. And I had this beautiful view of Hagley Park. And I, that were the two things. I visualized myself running again. And I felt these bubbles in my mouth. And I just held on to that. That just nice feeling. Small, perfect moments. Small, perfect moments, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perspective. Um, and so it works, the transplant, obviously. The, yeah, yeah, it worked. Yeah, it yeah. took, but I got that graft versus yeah, host disease, yeah. that rejection process yeah. at the start. And um, yeah. Yeah. And so then what happens? So I get put on high-dose steroids, high-dose immunosuppressants to kind of suppress my immune system so like the neutrophils and T-cells wouldn't start activating and attacking my, my skin and, and body. But it did at the start. It was in my attacking my stomach and my throat. I was getting ulcerated. And, yeah, um, finally it got under control. But I had many complications for about a year. I was in and out of hospital for a year, so I had to live in Christchurch for a year, in and out, back and forth. But what happened, bro, was I got this thing called trigeminal neuralgia. You know, it was this facial pain on the trigeminal nerve down the left-hand side of my face. And it was horrendous, mate. It's described as the suicide disease, and it's described as the worst pain known to man. And for the listeners, to describe the pain, it was like a cheese grater behind my eye while my face was burning while someone was stabbing my face. And, mate, I was screaming, screaming down the corridor like, Fah. I was on every pain medication you could think of, you know, like tramadol, Morphine, fentanyl, lignocaine, um, everything, you know. Um, it was just horrendous. Finally, they sent me up to um, the intensive care unit. I got a lignocaine infusion to not, try to numb the nerve and a bit of ketamine, and finally it worked, and, I, and pain was kind of diminished. I've still got a numb feeling down the side of my left side now, but the pain was gone from what it was, mate, but it was just horrendous. Eh? How long was that pain did it last for? Three months. Three months. Three months, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Fuck. Three months of this suicide yeah, disease. I, so. Yeah, I had this um, booklet writing down the pain, the times, the nurses, oh. and I had this book and it. I had uh, I had over 50 occurrences of this of this pain just shooting down yeah. my face, yeah. Do you, um, do you like, s- stub your toe now and just think, <laughs> and just think, <laughs> Easy, yeah. Like, like you know, do you walk past the bed with the bare feet and crack your little toe and just go, ah, whatever. Yeah, no, you do, you do. Yeah. You, I mean, I'm wide for, harder for pain now. I think yeah. so, but um, I mean, it's, it's a stupid question, but you know, like I just think that, like, <laughs> you're going through that, you know, and and then, 
Oh my goodness. I mean, it's, it's a testament to your character and your internal strength, man, that, um, you know, you've, you go through 50 episodes of that over three months and, um, but then again, mate, you know, a lot of people live with this, eh? A lot of people have it for a lot longer. I mean, they don't have the frequent episodes, yeah. but they have it quite quite often and yeah. a lot of it can't get under control. The pain can be diminished, but they still have it. So that's why they call it the suicide disease because yeah. some people live live with it, eh? Mate, um, and so you, you, you're you out of hot, you get out of hospital essentially, is that Yo, right? No, I don't. I kind of get out for a little bit, but during that time, you know, I'm screaming and my dad was there at the time and I said to dad, can you kill me? You know, just kill me. And he goes, son, if I could, I would. You know, and I saw him cry genuinely and, and I thought, no, I can't die. But he said, if I could, I would. You know, he just, you know, I've never seen my dad like that before. And, you know, I just gave my dad a massive hug and we genuinely fell in love with each other because I didn't have the strongest relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we, we were kind of glued together, you know. Mm. When you look back now at that, do you, if euthanasia was legal, would you have, like, you know, at the time you're saying, if I could, I would, yeah. you know, like, are you glad that you couldn't? Yes. Now. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just that time and moment. It goes back to what psychologists said. Yeah. You know, it's just this time and, and perspective you've got right here. It's yeah. just this moment, the pain and situation that you want to die. Yeah. You know, I was just so overwhelmed with two cancer diagnoses that being an ICU and everything like that and that pain. I didn't know when it would end, but um, no, I'm no, I, I'm not a fan of euthanasia. I think pain brings great love and great joy. And in that moment with my family, you know, we became a lot closer. And um, having someone to hold your hand and be there and comfort you through that pain, it's probably the most valuable, authentic thing you can have in your life. That true, authentic love when someone is in such despair, but having someone beside you holding your hand to the bitter end. I mean, that's true living right there. That's life right there, flesh and blood, you know, and I genuinely genuinely believe that living your last breath on your own terms with with your natural state is the most admirable way to go. And I know that may sound hard for a lot of people, but what I've been through and what I've felt from other people with their genuine love and compassion, I've got so much from that, and that's what brings people together human compassion, man, and I wouldn't be as close as I am with people today without them holding my hand through the severe pain I went through. So that's my thought on the subject. That's um, that's beautifully put, man. Yeah. Human connection is the answer, right? You know, like it's... That's what we're here for, man. It's all, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The... Uh, everything else is just stuff, right? You know, it's like just it's stuff. stuff. You know, yeah. it's that that intangible relationship that you experience with other human beings that is um, that you remember. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you said it. I couldn't have, you know, couldn't articulate it any any better than you did. Um, and you know, that's bloody tough for a. You know, you're a father now. You know, and and you know, you think about what that must have been. Obviously, it's hell for you, but you think about what it would be like seeing your child mm. like that. I, and I always say, you know, my parents and, and siblings went through a lot more than what I do on that emotional factor. Mm-hmm. You know, f- physically I, I suffered, but emotionally, mate, they, they took the brunt of that. And I think it was a generic statement from my dad at the time because he just saw this pain that I was in. Um, yeah. I don't think he generally meant it. Yeah, or he would have done anything. If he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Goodness. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like you said, it's harder on other people. It's it's harder on everyone. Stuff like this. It, it, it it's it's a. I don't want to say it brings people together, but you know, it's that um, you know, suffering together does make people closer, right? You know, it strips down all the stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, what happens from there? Yeah, so I was flared up, and that graft host disease just got out of control, and the immunosuppressants and the steroids weren't doing its job. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to get the special treatment over in Australia and Melbourne at um, Peter McCullum Cancer Centre. It's called extracorporeal phototheresis. And basically the treatment involved was kind of upregulating the healthy cells that I did have with this um, GVHD from my immune system and downregulating the unhealthy cells. So I got sent over to Melbourne and my brother came over with me to set me up for the first two weeks. And he was an amazing wee lad, came over with me. He was pretty young at the time, looked after me, but then he had to go back. And it was tough over there, you know, I was isolated again and, you know, I had suicidal thoughts most day, but I come back to that choice, you know, I had to keep going because for some reason I I just felt that this would end, you know, I did have that feeling that this would end some stage and so I had to keep calm and try and carry on. And the treatment was going great, mate. It was really working and what this GVHD, it was called GVHD scleroderma. So basically my um, skin and my fascia and my muscles were all gluing together and I basically became like the tin man, you know, like without oil, I couldn't bend over to tie my shoes or put my shoes on. And it was quite a struggle. So I'd be wearing jandals most of the time. And, you know, I really struggled to walk and I couldn't produce saliva and my eyes were just red raw all the time. And it was just, it was a tough time. It was a really tough time. But the treatment started to work, which is really cool. It was really working. And about four months into my stint in Melbourne, I woke up one morning and had a massive heart attack. Uh, it turned out... And then I got sent to, to the... Are you in hospital? No, I was actually on a retreat. So <laughs> I was on a Wim Hof retreat because I'd started doing this kind of breathing and cold showering and I was feeling a little bit good. And I went to this retreat and I wanted to get into this Wim Hof method and, and do that. But I woke up in the morning and I had, had a heart attack. And this guy called Guy Lawrence, he rung the ambulance and the ambulance came and took me to Geelong Hospital. And I went there, had a couple of heart attacks, went to Peter McCullum Cancer Centre where I was getting treatment, had a few more. And then I went to Royal Melbourne Cardiac Unit where I had another six heart attacks. So just to be clear, heart attacks are different from cardiac arrest. There was restricted blood flow. So I was still getting blood flow to the heart. It was just restricted. So there's a bit of, bit of pressure there as opposed to a cardiac arrest where there's no blood flow to the heart, where the heart stops. Don't downplay it. <laughs> Yeah, how many heart attacks did you have? I had twelve in, in total. Jesus Gosh, um, my goodness! And so, um, what's what's how do they fix that? How do they? What, yeah. why, why is that happening? Is that- <laughs> yeah. So, through my medical history, I was a complicated patient, and I went to Geelong. They saw my medical file. Like, holy heck, we don't know what to do. Back to Peter McCullum. They don't have a cardiac unit there sent to Royal Melbourne and they were like, what do we do with this guy? You know, he's got all these past cancer treatment. He's got this graft-versus-host disease. His, th- his skin is so thick, should we cut it open and give him a heart bypass or should we give him a stent in the left main artery? And they were just confused and conflicted because they've never come a- like come across a patient like myself. And I had, you know, I had six heart attacks in that turning the ECG upside down. And in the end, I just wrote the doctors a letter. I said, listen, I don't care if I live or die, just learn from me as a patient, just make a decision and back yourself with that decision. Had that heart attack, took me into the cat lab and they decided to stent my left main artery and put a stent up there and 
yeah, finally we were out of hospital. That's brave, man. That's sort of, yeah, I mean, yeah, you giving them the authority to just make a, make make a decision. decision. Yeah. yeah. They this, had to. This, I is not, keep... this is not sustainable. Yeah. 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 So I wrote, yeah, I don't know whether the, <laughs> the letter kicked it off or they had that decision already made until I had another one. I yeah. don't know, but I wrote him the letter. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so they do that and then obviously you stop having heart attacks after that. Yeah, I start, <laughs> a good thing. stop having heart attacks after that. Yeah, that was 28 days. 28 days there, man, doing that from from when I had my first one. Yeah. So I get out of hospital and... Yeah, the disease that I have flares up, you know, it's just out of control and I get intensive treatment again. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, holy heck, man, like I've got all these negative thoughts and when's this going to end and da-da-da. So I ask myself, you've got to take responsibility, mate. Your doctors and your nurses, your family and your friends have done so much. They're doing so much. What are you doing for yourself? And I thought, I've got to change my lifestyle. I've got to, got to make some make some new changes here. And I found this wellness centre, and it's the most prestigious wellness centre in, in Melbourne. It's called Fifth Element Wellness, and I went there, and it was just an amazing facility. You know, it had saunas, ice baths, um, it had a gym, yoga centre. Um, Dave O'Brien there, he's an amazing guy, a guru on gut health and supplements and everything like that. And basically, it just changed my whole lifestyle, complete overhaul of who, of my whole lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I adopted whatever they gave me. I just took it on board to try. Which is what? which was basically cold exposure, breathing. I was in the gym doing exercises. I was, because all I knew was running before that and working. I didn't really mm-hmm. understand gym work and everything like that. And gut health, I did a, I did a, about a two-year gut protocol trying to get my gut health right. And I changed my eating, the way I ate, and, yeah, incorporated a lot of supplements What does the in gut that. health thing sort of, obviously not the full two years, but what does it sort of entail? Like what sort of things are you taking to help with that? Um, a lot of fermented foods and a lot of slow-cooked meats. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, emphasising all it was emphasizing a lot of slow cooked meats, you know, yeah. just trying to get that good gut micro microbiome going yeah. and good gut health there. Yeah. And, you know, that's related to our immune system as well. Yeah. So it's got that correlating theme there. And plus it's got the yeah. brain gut access there For and it's sure. just helping that mental space. Serotonin, I think, is like the happy drug happy we hormone. create, happy hormone. And um, I think like 75% of that's created in your gut. Yeah. Yeah. I think up to 70 to 90% is yeah, yeah. in our gut. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I was just trying to establish a real good microflora in my yeah. in my gut. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you're living in Melbourne. I was living at Melbourne at the time. Yeah, still getting that treatment. Yeah, and I was going to this place every day. Yeah, you know, I wasn't doing. I was bench pressing a stick. Yeah. That's how I started bench pressing a stick because my body had glued together. You know, I was um, just doing small little exercises and I was yeah. yeah doing all that stuff. But the biggest thing for me was. Cold exposure and conscious breathing. That's yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about those because I'm I'm interested in those. So, um, the cold exposure. That's that's ice baths. Mm. As a cold exposure is kind of like a, a fancy way of saying getting in cold water, isn't it? So let's talk about that. So how did that sort of you know? So you go to this place and someone's like, um, you sort of tell them your story and they're like, you know what you should do? You should jump into a bath full of ice. Yeah. And you're like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. I was into the Wim Hof kind of stuff. I was doing a bit of cold showering. I was doing a bit of that stuff prior. And I was shy of the ice bath at the start, especially after the heart attack experience. But then when Dave and and Mark Clore and that said, I think it would do you some good. And I thought, if it's going to do me some good and these guys have me back, I'll give it a go. Mm. You know, I was in that space. I just wanted to be better. And also, in comparison to what you've been through, sitting in an ice bath for five minutes is probably not much, right? Not much, but still, I mean – 
our nervous system still yeah. responds to stress the same way. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's intentional, right? It's, it's intentional. intentional exposure, yeah, it yeah. was an intentional stressor. Yeah. So yeah, I, I had my first ice bath, mate, and I was I was petrified. I really was. I, I didn't know what would happen. You know, a person like me theoretically shouldn't be doing what I was doing. The doctors would definitely say no. But I got in there. And I got into my conscious breathing, what I'd done prior, you know, a bit of Wim Hof breathing and, and, you know, light, slow and deep nasal breathing. And I controlled the situation. I really owned it. And my, my body, I was in that fight or flight response, that symp- high sympathetic state. And I wanted to get the fuck out of there. I really did. I wanted to get out. But I come back, s- s- I slowed my breathing down and I said, no, you've got this, Josh, you've got this. And Matty, it was the most calm and I had the most mental clarity I had in such a stressful situation. And I was in there for five minutes at one degree. You know, I had big men around me in this bathtub, you know, the Australian kickboxing champ, the owner of the gym, and Mark, Mark Cloy, he's a former, former AFL player and everything. Come on, Joshy, breathe slow, mate, breathe slow. And I did. And, mate, I got out of there. I got out of this bath and I felt great, you know. I had a genuine smile on my face, mate. And it was just transformative for me, mate. I, I felt so good inside myself that I managed to control an uncomfortable situation with my mind, with my breath, and I smiled, and then I started running up and down this corridor for the first time in years, mate, and I thought, holy heck, if you can get over this, mate, you can, you can control these thoughts that are going inside your head just with breathing, just with exposing yourself comfortably in an uncomfortable situation. So I adopted that practice, cold showering in the morning, to this day, every day of my life, three ice baths or two ice baths a week. Um. Yeah, it's because it doesn't um, you know a cold, even a cold shower doesn't increase serotonin by like a huge in proportion. More, more we'll go on the dopamine. You know, oh, it's dopamine. Yeah, yeah, dopamine's our, our reward chemical. Um, it's in our stress, so we release these catecholamines: nor nor epinephrine and epinephrine, adrenaline and adrenaline, and dopamine too. And when we expose ourselves to cold, we can increase our dopamine levels by two hundred and fifty percent. You know. You know, that dopamine. That's why you're running up and down the hallway. That's like why that. I was like running up and down the hallway. at Christmas time. You know, when I wake up in the morning, cold shower, I've got that hit and I feel great. You know, I yeah. just feel good. Yeah. yeah. You do feel alive. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the the cold is a leveler, right? Like I, the one thing I like about it is like it's shit for everyone. You know, like everyone. it doesn't matter if you've done it a hundred <laughs> times, you've done it one time, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're a, a professional athlete or you're a, you know, a, a, an ordinary person, you know, like like it just, if if you, you get into that water and it sucks, yeah. right? It absolutely sucks regardless of who you are and, um, and, your whole body is it's like the running thing your whole body is screaming at you saying you know what you should do you should get out yeah it's exactly what you should do yeah and i love the saying it's short-term pain for long-term gain yeah. because there's so much that comes from it you know you've got immunological effects cardiovascular and mental clarity but you have that short-term stressor just like going to the gym it's mm-hmm. tough you know lifting weights or going for a run but you've got that um long-term gain afterwards you know that's yeah. what it incorporates yeah. yeah yeah and i think the um you know, one of the things I mean, I've done, I've done a um, with Nigel Beach. I know you Beach, know as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great so guy. Great he, guy. Um, I went through a, a, a course with him, and um, you know, we did a lot, spent the whole day on understanding the nervous system and all that kind of stuff, and then we did the breathing, all that kind of stuff. And I thought there was going to be like a secret, like for the ice water. Right? I thought there was like, oh, in the course they're going to teach you like how you get in and deal with the fr- – because I think they use salt ice as well. Like it's like zero degrees. Yeah, it keeps it a lot yeah, cooler. Yeah, like it's not ice, even yeah. – it's below freezing. 
And so I'm waiting for the secret, right? I'm waiting for I'm like, I'll call it breathing. Yeah, I'm like, cool. I understand the um I understand the you know, the the breathing and the nervous system and the the, the chemicals and the stresses and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like, right. He's like, right, let's um, you know, get your gear off and we'll jump in these baths. And I was like, but you haven't you haven't said the secret. And then he said, Oh yeah, I didn't say that to him, but I was like <laughs> waiting for it. And he's like, Oh, um, yeah, in the ice bath, just breathe through your nose slowly. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Are you, what are you, could you miss something? And um, yeah, and they he said um, he said hurry up and slow down. Yeah, and he said, and then um, that advice is what sort of stuck with me. And hurry up and slow down. Yeah, yeah. and you sort of you sit in there and it sucks and your body's screaming at you and yeah, you yeah. slow down and um, yeah, it's quite interesting with the breathing com- combined with that extreme stressor in the ice. You know, when we breathe through our nose, we can actually get into a parasympathetic state. You know, we can release a chemical called GABA, which is just breathing through our nose, which is a brain relaxant. So it helps relax the brain and puts us in a calm state just by nasal breathing. And when we're doing in that ice and that stress state, it's just a great combination. You know, we can kind of use that kind of ice bath state and real life state. You know, when we get all these kind of stresses, you know, the boss yelling out or the wife or anything, we can just come back to just nice, calm nasal breathing to just slow ourselves down and assess the situation with a bit more mental clarity. And that's the perfect situation in a cold stressor. Because as you said before, we all respond the same to being exposed to cold. Our nervous system's like, holy shit, I'm going to die here. So all that blood rushes back, you know, to the organs to try and protect it. But it's just like, overriding that sympathetic state and just breathing through the nose and slowing everything down and saying, no, 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 I've got this. I'm going to be okay. Let's just look at the situation with a bit more clarity. Yeah, and one thing you said last night, which I thought was really poignant, was that um, your the, the physiological response to the cold is no different to any form of stress. Like yep. if you're cut off in traffic, if you're Same stressed thing. at wife, boss, kids, work, finances, the, the, if, if you if you were able to measure the symptoms of your body, it actually is exactly the same. Yep. The as chemical the response is exactly the same. Yep. We release stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline and, and dopamine at the same time. Yeah. Yep. And so I guess from what my understanding, the way I kind of think about it is it's kind of like you, you flip into that flight or fight mode, um, flight or... F- fight or flight mode at a certain sort of threshold, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of what you're doing with the cold water is helping to readjust that threshold so that you don't, your body doesn't go into that fight or flight mode with such an easy stressor. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And basically we talk about the word resilience. So this is kind of how you build resilience to your everyday life. You know, you, you, voluntarily go into an um, uncomfortable situation and you control it a lot more. So then the time can increment even higher in a cold bath and the temperature can come down. So you create more resilience and the body and the nervous system adapts to that. And that's called a process called hormesis, Mm -hmm. you know, where we create adaptations in the body. It's just the same as going to the gym. We get stronger by working a muscle and we break that muscle tissue down and then we rest and then it builds back a bit stronger. So that's kind of the same thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, and, and and I guess what we're saying is that the stuff that we learn in the ice baths is then transferred into, into everyday into, life, into dealing with stress elsewhere. Everyday life, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm a huge, huge. Um, I'm similar to you with my cold showers daily. How, how um, long you been having a cold shower for? About really? the same as you. <laughs> about the same as you. Um, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I really like it, and again, it's one of those habits now that I just sort of haven't, haven't, you know, just don't not do. But feelings, understanding, and once you feel the power yeah. of the cold afterwards, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. I also find, in a weird way, we've talked about like running and skydiving. I find the colds kind of the same. It's like it's really hard to think about something else, mate. 
dead right, eh? Yeah. You're just in that zone and yeah. all you're thinking about is survival. Yeah. Just getting through that yeah. five-minute period or two-minute yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I find even in the shower, right, you know, like – I do a lot of thinking in the shower, probably most people when you're trying to solve the problems of the day that are coming up. And then, yeah. you know, I, I have a warm shower first um, and then I turn it off at the end. But um, I find that as soon as it goes cold, I can't think about anything, mm. you know, and I guess that's some form of meditation. It's sort of like, Definitely. you know, your brain is just going, you know, it's all its, all its um, I guess, optional parts of the brain that are that are used for things like thinking and um, uh, and 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 thought are going oh no we've got no time to work at the moment there's something else going We're on focus on this yeah, specific and just, situation you know, i just can't think about anything and i think there's some value in that i don't know what it is but i feel like there's value and Definitely value it's kind of the that. same as skydiving i think it's just that awareness where it brings it into the present moment yeah. and we can do that when we're talking to people and not thinking about our phone or what's going on it's just having that awareness right here right now and living in that yeah. now kind of presence for sure and the cold yeah. water is a good way to to encourage that, entice oh, that. Mate, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I advocate it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, and, um, and tell me about the breathing. I mean, you know, it's, um, you know, what, what particular sort of processes were you following over there that helped? Yeah, so I was de- doing this deep um, hyperventilation. Like the Wim Hof breathing. The Wim Hof breathing, yep. doing that. And then I got into um, a bit of oxygen advantage breathing. I've become a breathing instructor through them. So basically he's a real advocate for nasal breathing with small breath holds. So that's basically my daily practice now. You know, mm. I, I shut my mouth and breathe slowly in and out of my nose with small breath holds, you know. Mm. So that's kind of what I do now, just keep me nice and relaxed and calm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always got that tool in my toolbox, Matt. So, you know, when some, something's going on, there's external stimulus, I can just come back to my breathing and just slow everything down. Yeah. Yeah, it's a th- I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, I talked about before about exercise, right, or like, you know, weight loss, for example. It's like the answers, everyone's always expecting a silver bullet for certain things, there's right? no magic you know, answer, mate. It's like if, you, if, you, if we all just had a better understanding of what the things that we eat, our, our consumption, the way that we use our body, you know, exercise, movement, and, um, you know, the way that we breathe and interact with our sort of, you know, environment in that manner, you know, they're, they're just simple. I think that's what I know Wim Hof always says. He says the, the only thing wrong with us is, is it's so simple. You know, like it's so bloody. Like, Everything's at our fingertips. Breathe, you know, breathe. breathe. And, and it's a few minutes a day yeah. and, and the benefits are... Um, a vast. I think, um, you know, we've got a lot of things that we can utilise for free, you know, even exposing our eyes early in the morning to sunlight helps re- regulate our circadian rhythm. Breathing in and out of the nose during the day helps put us in a parasympathetic state, just rest state the t- whole time. Mm-hmm. Eating whole foods, you know, like, I don't care what diet you're doing, but we can't argue with whole foods, can we? Mm-hmm. You know, doing a bit of mo- movement to get blood flow going, thermoregulation, you know, sauna and heat therapy, our body creates different adaptations through that. You know, all these things we can do for free, you know, they're at our fingertips, but yet we're so confined with what's going on in our phone or TV or at work. Yeah. But yeah, if we just take the time even to set the foundation for the day, cold shower, a bit of breathing, expose our, our eyes to a bit of sunlight in the morning, mm. all these things will ha- help our immune system and we'll have a healthier, happier body. Yeah. Yeah. And who doesn't want that, right? Hey, foundation, mate. Yeah. yeah. And tell me about the flight on the way back from <laughs> Melbourne to New Zealand. We're getting to the end, eh? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a true believer in there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it is a cliche, but I truly believe that from what I've been through, so once I had this ice bath, I was getting a bit more mental clarity and I was starting to look at people in the eye a lot more and, and have conversations with unknown people. And 
you wouldn't believe it. I was on this flight flying over to Melbourne and the whole plane was full apart from one seat between me and this beautiful girl. And she was on the window seat and I was on the aisle seat. And um, I just said, hello, how are you? You know, and I'm no oil painting at this stage, mate. You know, I'm quite skinny, pigmentated face and things. And she's a stunner. I'm punching above my weight. And I said, hello. She said, hello back. And we got into a bit of a conversation and I said, what have you been doing? You know, she's been backpacking around New Zealand. I said, what are you up to in Australia? She's going to backpack around there and do a bit of a yoga retreat. And, and I said, oh, where are you from? She's from Switzerland. And I said, what do you do for a job? And um, she's a cancer nurse, an oncology nurse. And I said, oh, yeah, that's cool. And she said to me, what are you doing in Melbourne? And I said, oh, listen, I don't recommend this as a, as a pickup line to the fellas out there, but I said, oh, do you want to come and um, see some tra- cancer treatment? And she said, oh, yeah, okay. And I thought, oh, yeah, she's just being nice. So I told her where my motel was, and I said, meet me there at 10 o'clock and we can go. So sure enough, the next day she was at my doorstep, mate, and um, that was our first date. (laughs) (laughs) And where are you at now? Yep, so we had our first date, spent the week together, and um, she had a first kiss at the end of the week, mate, and it was just I was just blown away, like, who is this girl? But Sybil, my wife, who were were married now, she saw me from the inside, not from the outside, and that she's just such a special person. And you know, we got married up in the North Island. We eloped and got married on the beach under Pahutakawa tree, and it was just, it was amazing, mate. And she, we talk about health. You know, we've talked about cold exposure and everything like that. But community and connection—that's where health starts. And I, I really want to emphasise that. Having her in my life, for sure, I had great friends and great family, but. Someone who loved me externally, who didn't know me and just met me randomly and saw me for me, you know, she changed my life significantly and that gave me real purpose and meaning. And that's why I say, you know, community, I'll say it again, community and connection, it's the foundation of health. And, you know, we're married now and um, <laughs> I'll start crying again, mate. Um, yeah, three weeks ago, Maddie, we, um, we had our first kid, bro. <laughs> Amazing, huh? Yeah, mate. Um, you know, life's bloody tough. It's bloody tough. And, and this little girl, Maya, our wee daughter, she's been sitting on ice for 11 years, man. And, you know, the doctor said there wasn't the best chance because my sperm quality wasn't good. But, you know, we fertilised one egg and oh, a few eggs and, you know, it took to Sybil and here she is, mate. And, you know, my life could not be better. We talk about gratitude, but I can't describe in words the gratitude that I have for every day and my wife and my daughter, my friends and family and just the people I encounter now, you know, every day possesses opportunities and I'm just so alive and, and so happy with the person who I am. You know, I understand who I am as a person and I understand life a lot more clearer and, you know, the best part of my day, despite the cold shower, is just having my wee girl on my chest while my wife gives me a kiss on the forehead to say, have a good day at work, you know, and, you know, that's, that's life for me right there in that, in that moment before I go to work, you know, and it's pure beauty. How's that feeling, mate, when you're, you, you, you watch your wife, you know, give birth or, and then, you know, you, you get that moment and you get to hold your daughter for the first time and, like, they lay on your chest and sort of... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to upset you, sorry. I'm just no, I, I'm thinking about it myself as well, you know, and they, 
and and instantly in that in that that moment you recognize that there's a whole part of life you didn't even understand right it's it's the hardest thing to it's indescribable to someone else but you sort of sit there and you you hold that little human being and you're sort of like your your world changes because it's not about you anymore it's you've got this whole other thing that is you know that that that's you as well but it, it it's, you requires you, you know, and it just uh, the, the 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 universe means something different after that. Yeah, I think that's that full connection, and you're you're all of a sudden responsible for this wee child yeah. and development, and you want to instill good values and morals yeah. and see that person thrive the best they can and look yeah. after them, and then you can understand how your parents went through so much yeah. watching you what you went through. Yeah, yeah? and you feel like you feel like an <laughs> asshole, don't you? You think God like. This is what my parents did for me, and yeah. you know, I did this when I was a teenager, or that when I was a teenager, and yeah, um, like, yeah, it's a um, it's a crazy journey. And what have you, you what have you called her? I've called her Maya Hannah Coman. So Hannah, her middle name's after my bone marrow donor. Donor. So we've become good friends now. She, we've we've known each other for a, for a while, and yeah. So Maya Hannah Coman is her name. She's yeah, she's just changed our lives and enriched it so much. Beautiful. Yeah. So, um, that's amazing. And and how are you now, mate? I'm <laughs> I'm so good, bro. It's just um, nice to be alive. It's nice to be breathing and it's nice to make adequate thoughts. So, And it's nice to be able to help other people. You know, um, so many people have helped me. I've written a book, The Wind at My Back, and the, the wind really signifies the people that have pushed me along the way. And, you know, I want to be a part of that too and, and just encourage other people not to give up on themselves, you know. I've got a great saying. I ended it with the talk last night. It's one of my favourite quotes, you know, success is not final and failure is not fatal. It's it's the courage to continue continue that counts and you know for me I understand that life's tough I really do and everyone's going through something and I just feel it's my responsibility now to try and share my story and understand that it, there is light at the un- end of the tunnel and I know life might be hard for specific people right now or whatever but just understand that that's the pain this temporary situation is difficult and you never know what's around the corner opportunities may beckon and I just know where I've been, where Victor Frankl's been, where all these people who have suffered, but yet they've got so much good out of life and their life's changed for the better despite their hard situation. So I think that's my responsibility now is just to help other people, mate, and encourage them along their own journey. Yeah. Hey, we're certainly doing that, man. And, um, you know, with your speaking, we'll, we'll cover in a minute. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, conversations like this and, you know, there people listening right now, mate, in their cars or running or in the gym or in their headphones and, um, you know, I'm, I'm – certain that your story has got um you know, i know it's got so many elements that are going to help other people so you're certainly making the most of that um did you ever think you were going to die yeah i did i mean that's that's part of the reason i wrote a book too you know i thought i could leave something behind for my family or people but i did think i'm going to die and you know i do think i'm going to die tomorrow as well that's the truth you know and I've got opportunities to fulfill today and who knows what may happen tomorrow, you know. Um, we are going to die, Maddie. That's the truth. And we've all essentially got a cancer. And when our time comes, our time comes. And, you know, we've got every day to live, every day to make the most of it, every day to see someone for who they are and every day to see the opportunities that may beckon. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an interesting way to put it. We all do have cancer, Yeah, you know, and we all are dying. We and, are, um, yeah. The only difference is that we don't know the, you know, sometimes people get given a, a, a diagnosis yeah. and, and, a, and a, um, a prognosis where the rest of us, you know, we don't 
No, it could be tomorrow. It, it could, could be, be tomorrow. Eighty years. Yeah, just yeah. walking. Yeah, I don't want to say that generally that people have cancer. It's just a yeah. <laughs> metaphor for saying, "Hey, your time, your clock's ticking." Yeah, yeah. your clock's ticking yeah. every day. You know? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, you said before that after you, um, uh, you know, went into remission the first time, you sort of had like a feeling it would come back. Mm. Do you have that feeling now? No, I don't. Um, I don't have a feeling that I'll have cancer back. It's not on my radar. I don't think about that. Um, I know that I will die, but I don't think it will be from cancer. I just, I don't feel that, um, if that makes sense. No, I know what you mean. I, I, you know, I don't know what it is about things. You know, you just know things sometimes. And I was so happy. I didn't know how you'd answer that. And it really made me smile when you said that because sometimes, you know, we don't know the answer, right? You know, like, and you don't know how things or life's going to unfold and there's a lot of chance to everything we do. But uh, sometimes you've got an inkling in your gut and you can't quantify it. You can't put it into words, but you just sort of know certain things. And, you know, you know, you know, when you meet someone that's important and special, you know, True. when you um, hold your child for the first time uh, and, and something, yeah, I don't know what it is. You know, you're, you've, you're religious, you know, and, and, and we can talk about it in a second. And, you know, I would say I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm religious. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I am, you know, like do I pray sometimes? Yeah. Um, I believe in something greater than us for sure, and I think that's part of it. You know, I don't know who that is or what that is, but yeah. I think that you know I don't that think gut anybody does to be yeah, honest. That gut feeling is the is part of that, that intuition that when intuition. you know yeah. things sometimes, and yeah. um, some things sometimes you know something instantly. And I'm yeah, yeah I'm so pleased to to hear you say that. Um, did you were you religious before? Um, not my parents and that went to church, but I was just not into it. That just wasn't my thing. I kind of pushed away from it and didn't really believe, you know, I was doing my sports and everything like that, but it wasn't until I was in hospital that first round, I read Viktor Frankl's book and he spoke a bit about God and things. And in hospital, you have a, have a Bible there. And I actually picked it up and I thought, oh, I'll have a read. You know, I've got nothing else to do. I'll just have a read. And just see, and I opened up to a chapter of Joshua, that was my name. I thought, I'll see what that says. And in verse 1, um, chapter 9, it said, um, what did it say? 1 9, um, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord God is with you. And that verse really resonated with me. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for God is with you. And I, I just felt something inside myself. And I think you're right. No one knows what that is, but that feeling come to me and something hit me, something, I just connected with something. Yeah. And I wouldn't say myself as religious. I have a belief that, you know, where there is something bigger than us out there and that's what I pray. I, I do read the Bible because I like the stories within it. I, I do like the stories. Mm. Um, but I think everyone, not everyone, I mean, it's your own choice, but I act. I do act as if God exists. If someone bigger than me is watching me and I've got a responsibility to fill, fill my duty as be the best person that I can be on this earth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, yeah, but I think that the, the fundamental underpinnings of Christianity, for example, mm. are all good, right? You know, like it's like, it's yeah. like if, if regardless of, of why 
that is. Yeah. It's still, you know, you know, do to others you'd have done to yourself. Like, do one, yep, for sure. I mean, the Ten Commandments, you know, mm. great things, great morals to abide by. Absolutely. Yeah, great, yeah. great morals to abide by. But I think anything can get taken out of context for the art of greed for or sure. deceit yeah. or lies. I think anything, you know, even a commodity, a business and society, you know, we want to capture people and instill fear and say, do it this way. There's no specific way of living, but I like the morals and the stories within the Bible and that biblical narrative, and I like the feeling that someone's watching me. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I think um, it might be a little bit egotistical. I I think about sometimes the like kind of like legacy is kind of like what you leave behind as well, and it's kind of it's all the small things you do. You know, like mm. it's like you might do one thing in your life, and and that's significant, right? But I think that ultimately your legacy is how your kids perceive you. Yeah. You know how the people that know you perceive you, yeah. and that's not made up by one thing you do. That's made up by the way you live. Yep, the many actions that you take to present yourself for sure. Yep. You know, and I think that saying it as legacy might be egotistical, but I think the 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 way that you know you want to be remembered, you want to instill a way of living that is in line with how you what you think is important, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it values driven. And, and I think that maybe that's how I try and see things a little bit. And particularly when you have kids, right, it sort of changes that you start to think about, you know, they're watching me <clears throat> and they are, they might not understand me, but they, they feel me, you know, mm. and, they, and and you want them to feel the stuff that's right. I like yeah. that, eh? I really like that, eh? Because you're that higher presence with them mm. and you're setting their foundation for their life to yeah. grow as a person. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that's what I feel with with God essentially. Whether, yeah. whether you want to put a title on it, but mm-hmm. I feel someone's watching me. I've got these values and morals to abide by, mm. and that's my moral obligation to yeah. live. Yeah, yeah. I heard a good saying once: "Character is what you do when no one's looking." Well, like, you yeah, know, nice. and that's kind of like the way you're saying. It's like yeah. I feel like someone's watching me, yeah. and it's like, um, and that's your character, right? That's who you are when no one's watching, and there's no, yeah. you know, there's no one. No one know if you do do the right thing or the wrong thing. It's yeah. like that's that's who you are in that yeah. moment. Yeah, and characters define where we put our heart to. You know. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, I read the Bible and and I do pray and I do meditate on on God's word. So that's kind of what I do. Yeah. I'm not here blasting people on the street. You got to do this. That's just <laughs> not me. You know. I'm I'm not into that kind of Bible bashing stuff or anything yeah. like that. This is just what's helped me and got me through these tough and testing yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. It's been a big part of my life. And yeah. Yeah. My wife. My wife en- enjoys me in prayer and we pray for our little daughter most nights and things like that. Yeah. But um, it's just what we do. Um, yeah. Everyone's got their own way of living. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um. I ask this to everyone, and, and this is certainly, you know, an interesting question for you, but, you know, what are you most proud of? You know, like, <laughs> I know you've listened to a few of these episodes, so you may have been expecting this question, but... I normally cut it off halfway, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You make it halfway off. No, oh, no. no. <laughs> Not many people make it that far. No, no. Um, what am I most proud of, mate? I, um, there's a lot. There's a lot. There really is, but... um. I could not answer this without saying I'm most proud of my wife and child, you know. That's that's where my life is right now and finding them and having them in my life. I'm just I'm so proud of them as a person. I'm so proud of having them in my life. My wife's just incredible, amazing lady and she's just transformed my life for the better and now we've got our beautiful girl Maya. So I'm I'm just so proud of our family and my family. I'm 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 just so proud of my family and the people in my life. Yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, that's yeah. a great answer, man. And I know they're proud of you. You know, like <laughs> I know they are. Like, and I know that, um, you know, your daughter is going to grow up and read your book and hear this story, listen to these podcasts, and I know you've got some great things in front of you. I believe probably more than you do. I think at the moment, but I I know that you're um 
you know, she's going to hear and listen to these things and, and she'll feel the same sense of pride that you feel in her now. And I think that um, it's all you want as a dad, right? You know, like. You just want the best. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I just talked a lot. I always, you know, thought about that, you know, what's my why or whatever. And, you know, I came to this idea of sort mm. of creating a legacy that my family are proud of, you know, and I want, I want, I want someone to bump into my daughter one day and, mm. and then they figure out somehow they know me and, that person to tell her stuff that would go, I'm really proud he's my dad, yeah. you know, and uh, and I think that, you know, I think that's going to happen immensely for you. I think that, you know, your story, the things you've done and the the path you're now on is going to put you in a situation that, um, you know, if I meet your daughter, I'm going to tell her some shit that's going to make her <laughs> bloody proud of your dad, that's for sure. So uh, She might fall into some other mates in my early days and they're like, holy heck, your dad did that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've all got those yeah, stories, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, no, I'm definitely proud of my family and if I try my best by her, hopefully she can try her best by herself. Yeah. yeah that's her. Yeah, yeah. And um, and the last question um, mm. you may have also been expecting was, um, is what is what do you wish everyone knew? You've had a you've had a hell of a ride, man. Like a like a you've been through hell. It's you, what you've have experienced is 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 unlike most people can ever imagine. And so, you know, you in doing so, you have a perspective that not many people have. And so, you know, you've you've I. I I want you to give an answer that I that that you know only you could give because only you have have been through what you've done. So, and everything that you've learned today, you've given some amazing pearls of wisdom throughout this conversation. But what would be the main thing, the one thing that you wish everyone knew? It's a big question, Maddie, but um, I think love, love like your life depends on it because it does. I have to leave it like that. Mate. Love with all your heart and soul. It's a it's a beautiful way to end it. And um, mate, I bloody love your work. I love you. You're a bloody good <laughs> human man. And I, I I know you know. I've talked about having this sort of gut instinct. And I've you know we've had our conversations over the phone. We met last night, and I just love your work. And um, you know, you've got this book out. People can get your book, Paper Plus, Wit Calls, or yep. at your website, which website. is joshcoman.com. Yep. Um, alternatively, um, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work at the moment, um, as a speaker. And so, um, I watched you speak last night. I watched a, a, a room full of 250 people just memorized, mesmerized by what you're saying. Um, I know that you've got a, a, a certainly a future in front of you sharing your story. Um, and I couldn't, uh, anyone that's listening or, um, you know, that's, um, you know, if you're involved in any sort of event and you want Josh to speak, what's the best way to reach out to you? Probably through your website? Through my website. Yeah. I've got yeah. my contact, contact details on there. Instagram, I'm pretty active on Instagram, not so much on the Facebook, but yeah, yeah. Instagram too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool, mate. Well, look, I um, I appreciate your work. I appreciate the time. I <laughs> appreciate you, you, you. Like I, I said last night at the end, and um, after you spoke, I think that you know, not only am I grateful that you, you know, have taken the time to do this, but also, you know, you've been through hell and. Other people are going to go through hell in their lives and you having the courage to stand up and tell your story openly, honestly and authentically is going to make other people's hell a little bit easier. Well, that's the intention. I, I really hope so and I hope I can connect with them, their pain to mine, and hopefully that gives them the encouragement to continue with their own life and their own struggles, you know, because that's what it's about, human connection, helping one another along. Josh Coleman, you're a great man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maddie. Lovely to see you. 
Wow. There we go. Josh Coleman, ladies and gentlemen. Man, I, um, I've never had a podcast go that long. I don't think I, um, I had notes. I had questions all written down, but um, I didn't use them at all. We just, um, we just spoke. That was one of the most genuine and heartfelt conversations I think I've ever had. And um, you know, what a pleasure to, to talk with him, to listen to him. Um, you know, Josh is a really, really amazing man, and um, you know, to spend this time with him was just um, amazing. Um, I'm so grateful to Josh for his time, um, and I'm also grateful for for you for listening to the podcast. So thank you so much for checking out the Road to Success podcast. Um, if you do like it and you did like this episode, if you could please like or subscribe to the podcast on uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you could leave a review, that would also really help as well. You can leave a star rating on Spotify um, or you can leave a written review on um, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. That would be very much appreciated. As um, you know, we said, if you if you are interested in, in um, either reading a copy of Josh's book, then you can get that um, on his website. It's probably the best place to start. JoshComan.com. Um, and if you're interested in having him um, speak at an event as well, then again, jump, reach out to him um, on his website as well, because he is an amazing guy with an amazing story, as you are now well aware. Thank you again um, to Josh for his time. Thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Hopefully you can like, subscribe, and even share the episode as well. God, there is some wisdom in that conversation that is surely going to help some people. So if you can um, share the episode and tell people to go and check out the Road to Success podcast on Spotify or iTunes, that would mean the world to me and hopefully also help them as well. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Josh. Love you all. See ya. Bye. Bye.